Let us pray. Our most eternal and everlasting Father, we are thankful this evening for the privilege that you have afforded us to assemble together to study a portion of your word. We are aware that the human mind is incapable of comprehending anything that is spiritual apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it's a request that the Holy Spirit will provide us the concentration that we need to hear precisely what you have for us this evening. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Still in Exodus chapter 16, verses 13 to 36. Exodus chapter 16, verses 13 through 36. I'm going to read from verses 31 through 36. It is, The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was quite like a, a coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. So they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ether. Now let me continue to refresh your mind that a primary message of the major section of Exodus chapter 16 verse 1 to chapter 17, verse 7, is to be careful about grumbling against your spiritual leaders, since doing so is the same as grumbling against God. Now, in our last study, that focused on verses 31 and 32, we started to consider the instruction of the Lord to Moses regarding the preservation of the manna for Subsequent generation of Israel. Now we stated that the father Moses was to keep the manna. The Lord instructed him to collect. Should remind us of the lesson that we considered in the past. Which is that the nature of the result of an action. Is dependent on whether the action is sanctioned by the Lord or not. Now we ended our study. By stating that there is a purpose for the preservation of manna, as the Lord instructed Moses. So it is with this purpose that we begin our study this evening in the last closing of Exodus chapter 16, verse 32. Look at that last clause. It says, So they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. Now we are certain that the last clause of Exodus 16 verse 32 is concerned with the purpose of preserving the manna because of the word so that begins the clause. That word is translated from a Hebrew word that as a preposition may mean on account of, for the sake of. As it is used by the psalmist to uh, convey that the Lord guides him in the path of righteousness that leads to blessing because of or for the sake of his reputation. As in Psalm 23 verse 3. Psalm 23 verse 3. Psalm 23, verse 3. 
it reads, Psalm 23 verse 3 reads, He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now that's name's sake, or for his sake really, is a way to describe the purpose for which God is doing something and as a preposition here of the Hebrew word to show that God's reputation is at stake. Now the Hebrew word as a conjunction though may be used to convey purpose so that it may be translated in order to, in order to, as it is used to describe the purpose of Jehu acting deceptively towards the prophets of Baal which was really his purpose was to destroy all of them. To get rid of uh, Baal worship in Israel. And that's what part of what he tried to do as recorded in Second Kings chapter 10 verse 19. Second Kings Second Kings Chapter 10, verse 19. It reads, Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his ministers, and all his priests. See that no one is missing, because I am going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order, that's a Hebrew word, now here it translates, in order to destroy the ministers of Baal. Now, so the word may be used to indicate the result with the meaning of uh, so that or even therefore. As it is used to describe the appropriate response of the person who understands God's forgiveness, which is to show reverence to Him. That the psalmist understood, and that's what he stated in Psalm 130, verse 4. Psalm 130, verse 4. And uh, put your marker in Psalms because I'll go to one passage in Exodus and come right back to Psalms. Psalm 130, verse 4. Yes, our Hebrew word is translated therefore in this passage. It reads, with you there is forgiveness. Now the precedent verse, of course, is saying, is, you know, if, if Lord, the Lord took care of our, if He took record of our sins, no one would stand really. But He says in you is forgiveness. Therefore, you are fear. That is, we reverence Him because we understand we have been forgiven. Now, in our passage of Exodus 16, verse 32. The Hebrew word is used to convey purpose so that it may be translated so that or in order that. Or of course any conjunction that is a marker of purpose can be used here. Now in any case, the purpose of Israel preserving the manner is so that those who are not eyewitnesses to the provision of manna will see what the Lord used to sustain Israel in the desert, as stated in the clause we're studying, Exodus 16 32, where it says, So they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. Now, as we have stated uh, several times in our study of this section of Exodus, that is concerned with the provision of manna and quail, it is important. We recognize that although many of our English versions 
use the word bread. In their translation of the Hebrew word Bechem, uh, use that indeed, that no doubt means bread, no doubt, but in the clause that we are considering, it is best translated food, not bread, food. Now, this is the cause what the Lord commanded Moses and Israel to keep easy manna, which is the substance that may be baked or so making bread or boiled. Now, thus, it is better simply to indicate that the subsequent generations of Israel will see the food, not bread, the food the Lord used to feed their forefathers while they were in the desert as they traveled towards to the land of Canaan. Now, why is that really necessary for the subsequent generation of Israel to see the, the manna? Why was it necessary? Well, it is that the manna will remind to them of at least two things regarding the God of Israel. Two things. First, it will remind them of God's loving care, evident in his faithfulness of providing daily the manna for Israel for 40 years. Every day, for 40 years. Now there's perhaps nothing that captures our attention like what we see with our eyes. Now subsequent generations of Israel who hear that their God had a loving care toward their forefathers when they hear, for example, that God of Israel uh, pro- uh, prove his, his concern for them, not only by what he said, but by what he did. Now, for example, the Israelite, the subsequent generation that we hear, that God expresses concern for them, their forefathers, as conveyed in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. They will hear this, they will understand, they will read, or if you read to them. So here they will read about God's concern that He verbalized it through Moses. Because he reads, Exodus 3, verse 7 reads, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land. A land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now so, they will also hear, or will have heard of God's love and care. For their forefathers demonstrated in their miraculous deliverance from Egypt. To bring them to the land of promise as the psalmist himself recapped or testified to in Psalm 44 verses 1 through 3. Psalms 44. Psalms 44 verses 1 through 3. Psalms 44, verses 1 through 3. It is, We have heard with our ears, O God, 
Our fathers have told us what you did in their days. In days long ago, with your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our forefathers. You crushed the peoples and made our forefathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. So these testimonies about God's love and care for Israel, uh, Israel's forefather in particularly, will probably not impact these Israelites as much as what they observe. So I'm saying that just as some of you have experienced when you give testimony to others about what God has done for you. But they did not show the same kind of excitement over whatever it is that God has done for you as you did. So you're surprised. They didn't show you some excitement. Well, the reason is quite simple. A person would not normally be excited in the same way as the one who experiences God's goodness. It's not going to happen. Because you, you are the one that experienced it. So your excitement will never be equal by another person. Because they didn't experience what you experienced. Now I see, the person, at best, such a person will rejoice in what God has done for you. But will not have the same, exactly the same excitement as you do because you are the one that experienced or observed God's goodness. Thus then, we contain that subsequent generations of Israel will not have the same response to the truth that the God of Israel cared for their forefathers by hearing what God did for them as they would by observing the manner that the Lord provided their forefathers. So I'm saying that when the Israelites of subsequent generations see the manner in its preserved form, they will be encouraged about God's care for them. God's care will be more real to them because they have something to look at that reminds them of his care evident in his faithful provision. Unfortunately, and wrongly so, we like to live by what we see. But contrary to the Christian faith, the Bible says we don't live by sight. We live by faith. So, but the reality is that still many of us, all we have to do is if we see it, we're convinced. But to walk by faith, a little bit difficult for us. Now, so, it requires though, great care and faithfulness on the part of the Lord to continue to provide a manna daily for Israel despite their many sins or failures. The manna, as we have stated, was to remind Israel of God's faithfulness in providing for his covenant people. Now, knowing that the Lord provided manna for Israel daily for 40 years should be a reminder to all of us that the Lord will not fail to take care of us while we are on this planet. He will provide our daily necessities. David testified to this truth that the Lord never fails to provide the daily necessities of his children, although he expressed it in terms of the children of the righteous, not begging bread, according to Psalm 
chapter 37 verse 25. Psalm 37 verse 25. Psalm 37 verse 25. He reads, I was young, and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or the children begging bread. Now it is because of the Lord's faithfulness to provide the basic necessities of his children that the Lord Jesus commands us not to worry about them, as we read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. It is, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat or drink, or about your body, what you wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? So anyhow, the manner was to be preserved. For subsequent generation of Israel was not only to remind the Israelites of God's love and care in His uh, uh, and in His faithfulness, that you know His love and care that's evident in His faithfulness in providing for their forefathers, but it is also another reminder to them of the power of God. Now we are saying. Then that the second reason for preserving the manna for subsequent generation of Israel is to remind them of God's power. The raining down of manna from heaven is a demonstration of God's power to do what seems impossible. No one prior to the provision of manna has heard of food being rained down from heaven on a daily basis for 40 years. However, this is what we have with Israel. Hence, the manna should remind the future generations of the Israel of the power of the God that can do that. Now that the manna serves to remind Israel of God's power is implied in the last Clause of Exodus 16, verse 32, that we're looking at, when he said, When I brought you out of Egypt. Now, this clause is a reminder of the power of God that was involved in Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Now, it should remind the Israelites not only of the various plagues the Lord brought on Egypt. On Egypt as a demonstration of his power, but also of the miracle of dividing of the Red Sea. So the point is that the manna Israel was to preserve for the subsequent generations was intended to be a reminder to them of the power of God of Israel. Now it should also remind us that God has power to provide for us in miraculous ways for his own glory. Now, one of those, he may not, of course, rain down manna from heaven, but he certainly can and does provide miraculously. Now, one of the things that I've said many times here is when I hear those who preach or teach, Say, 
where God used to do that, he doesn't do that anymore. I just shudder. First of all, they are limiting God. Secondly, they are shown to me, I mean at least, they may not realize, and say, you, you are revealing that you are so arrogant. That's almost unbelievable. Now, I say this because of a conversation, it's just not me, I know now you can tell, of a conversation I have with uh, one of the members I listen over, uh, over the internet, uh, telling me about what their pastor said. Because from Genesis 24 about how Isaac made a wife and so on and so on. He said, well, you know, those things don't happen now. And I say, that just shows how people, what they know. And I remember reading a book of a man from Romania. And he described exactly how a young man went into a church the same day, met a wife and married him. And so many so on. And when I read that, I said, okay. Now that person has no knowledge of that. God does many things that we really don't have any knowledge of. Because we're so limited in our own small world. We think whatever doesn't happen around us means God doesn't do it anywhere. And that to me is human arrogance. God can do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. He doesn't need permission. He doesn't require us to tell us tell him what he should or should not do. So my point though is that although God may certainly, may not, I mean he could, if he wants to, rain down manna from heaven, but he certainly can provide for the believer miraculously. Now, I'm saying that we shouldn't think that because God will not rain food down from heaven, that he will not miraculously provide food for his own. He will. Now, what I said reminded me of the testimonies of God's miraculous provisions for his uh, children. And this is what I can see from a a record of a book titled uh, The Scottish Waddies by John Howey. There there we have uh, several testimonies, but I'll pick up two here. So we have an account of a minister by name, Andrew Duncan, who was persecuted because of the truth and was banished from his home with his wife and his many children. Now, sometimes, because either they don't know much of history or we live in a very short world in in terms of what we think and remember. Uh, people don't realize that Europe used to be a hotbed to persecute Christians. They don't really they forgot that now. That there were times that, because the, United, the family of the United States should always remind you that too, there were times when Christians were heavily persecuted in Europe because they preached the truth, not Roman Catholicism. And so they suffered tremendously. And this is one of those, this Andrew was one of those. So he was driven out of the town where with nothing. So they were in their need of food where they were banished since they did not know anyone in that place. His children cried for food. He prayed and exhorted the wife who was saddened by their plight. Saying in effect that the Lord, uh, that's the husband, who, who rained down bread from heaven, will provide for them. He believed that. Now this was exactly what happened. For as we are told, before the morning, a man brought them a sack full of provisions. Without telling them how the sack came to them, despite his plea for the man to tell him, who sent the provision. He didn't tell him. Nonetheless, the sack contained provisions to sustain them for a while. Now he took the sack, then and said to the wife, quote, see what a good master I serve. End of quote. They were starving, nothing. And suddenly here comes food that will last for a long time. Now, similar testimony 
is recorded of a man, John Craig, who was, uh, who was tried and condemned to be born in Rome. But Pope Paul IV died the day before his execution. He then and many others uh, were set free from prison. So he resumed his preaching of the gospel. In one of his travels, he came to Italy, where eventually he ran out of money and was hiding to avoid capture by Roman Catholic authorities. But where he was hiding, a dog brought to him in his hiding place a purse with some gold in it, which, by which he supported himself until he was able to escape the danger he faced. Explain that. You are hiding. Here comes a dog in his mouth with a purse. And he opened the mouth. Here's gold. Where did the gold come from? You tell me. And that's what the man used to support himself for a while. So these two testimonies huh, of the things that happened in the 16th and the 17th centuries should confirm to us that while God may not rain down food from heaven, he will certainly display his power to provide for his own in whatever manner he decides to do so. Now be that as he may, it is important that those who expound the word of God, especially instructions that are to be obeyed to enable the audience to understand how to carry out the instruction. So I'm saying that it is not enough for teachers of the word of God to tell believers what the Lord said. But they should go a step further to explain how to apply the instruction or instructions that they should, in order to help them uh, carry out what God wants. Now, I base this assertion on the communication of Moses to Aaron, introduced in the first clause of where we're studying in Exodus chapter 16, look at verse 33. Verse 33 reads, So Moses said to Aaron, now the word so here is translated from a Hebrew particle that's often translated and in our English versions as is this done in our verse here in such English versions as the English Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version among others. However, the Hebrew particle has several other usages. In our passage, it is used either to introduce the result of Moses receiving instruction from the Lord regarding the preservation of manna, so that it may be translated so or therefore. Or it is used to indicate that what is described in verse 33 follows sequentially to the instructions Moses received from the Lord and so may be translated and then. So this may be really a situation where both interpretations are intended in the sense that what follows results from the instruction to Moses, from the Lord of course, but then what follows is also sequential to what preceded it. Now this aside, the Hebrew particle uh, introduced uh, Moses' application of the instruction of the Lord to him regarding Israel's preservation of the manna for future generations. Again, we read in Exodus 16:33, it says, So Moses said to Aaron. Now, the fact that Moses communicated to Aaron the instruction that we'll get to shortly is a reminder to us of the hierarchy in the spiritual life, so to speak. 
Aaron was older than Moses. But Moses was the one God chose in accordance with his plan as the spiritual leader of Israel, with Aaron serving as his spokesman. Now, Aaron understood the role the Lord assigned him. And so, at, at this point, did not question Moses' authority of, of communicating to him in a way that implies Moses issued a command to him to carry out. But later on, because of guess who? The sister. He, he got dragged into questioning Moses' authority and the sister bore the grunt of that too. Anyway. So my point is that when believers recognize that the Lord has placed spiritual leaders over them, not based on human factors, but based on his plan. Such believers will be careful not to question the authority of the spiritual leaders. Now at this point, of course, should remind us then of the main uh, message of Exodus 16, 1 through chapter 17, 7, which again is, be careful about complaining or grumbling against your spiritual leaders. Since doing so is the same as grumbling against God. So in any case, Moses' communication to Aaron is indeed an application of the Lord's instruction to Israel through him. In other words, Moses' instruction is his way of explaining the instruction of the Lord to him and so of him showing Aaron how to apply the instruction of the Lord uh, to him. Now remember that the instruction of the Lord is given in the expression of Exodus 16 verse 32 when he said, Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. Now, the instruction does not say how it is to be carried out. Unless, of course, Moses truncated the Lord's message to him, but there's no uh, direct evidence to suggest that that was really what happened. In other words, that he truncated his message. Therefore, we contend that the instruction of Moses to Aaron is his way of helping Israel in particular Aaron, to see how to apply the Lord's instruction regarding the preservation of the manna that the Lord gave to Israel in the desert. Now, it is our assertion then that Moses' instruction to Aaron is his way of helping Israel to carry out the Lord's instructions regarding the preservation of the manna for future generation of Israel because of the word so that begins verse 33. Again, that word so is translated from a Hebrew uh, particle. Interestingly, this Hebrew particle appears over 5,700 uh, 5, times in the Old Testament scripture. This it is a very common one used but uh, it's all usually translated and in our English versions, as it's done here also in some English versions. However, the Hebrew particle has several other usages in our passage. Again, it is used either to introduce the result of God's communication to Moses regarding the preservation of the manna for subsequent generations of Israel. So that it may be translated, therefore, or so. Now, or, it is used really to indicate that what is described in verse 33 follows sequentially to the Lord's instruction to Moses in verse 32. In which case, it could be translated uh, something like uh, then or, uh, or and then. The contemporary English version began verse 33 with the word then. But we cannot uh, be certain what the translators had in mind since the word then uh, in the English may mean at that time 
or next or therefore. Now this aside, it is probably the case that Moses used the Hebrew particle in both senses. In other words, Moses meant when he wrote uh, what he wrote in verse 33 resulted from the instruction of the Lord to him about the preservation of the manna but then his communication to Aaron followed sequentially the Lord's communication to him. So anyway, Moses communicated to Aaron an instruction following the Lord's instruction to him as in the sentence of Exodus 16 verse 33. Again it says, Moses said to Aaron. Now the content of Moses' communication to Aaron as we have indicated, involves an explanation of the Lord's instruction to him regarding the preservation of the manna. By this we mean that what Moses instructed Aaron is indeed an application of the Lord's instruction to him. Now recall that the instruction of the Lord to Moses regarding the preservation of the manna for subsequent generation of Israel is given in the expression of verse 32 of Exodus 16. Look at verse 32 again. Say, take an omer of manna and keep it for the generation to come. That's all he says. He didn't say how. Just take it. Do it. So the instruction of the Lord to Moses that, that we have recorded they really did not have any direct reference as to how this instruction is to be implemented. Therefore, Moses, guided by the Holy Spirit, instructed Aaron regarding the execution of the Lord's instruction to him. Now, Moses' explanation of how to carry out the Lord's instruction regarding the preservation of the manna for subsequent generations involves two actions on the part of Aaron. Two actions. The first action is concerned with the means of the preservation of the manna. As given in the expression of Exodus 16 verse 33. Look at what it says. Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Now that word jar is translated from a Hebrew word that appears only here in the Hebrew scripture. That's what is usually called hapax, the germinum, something that occurs once in the literature. And so, because of that, it has an uncertain meaning. Because if a word appears in one, one or two or three places, we can figure out the meaning. But if it occurs one place, because a little bit difficult to find out the meaning. So, because of that, the word may mean a basket or a container. Now, it is used in a vessel in the sense of a jar. That is really a cylindrical vessel, usually used for holding liquids, and so most likely had a cover. To keep its content from spilling. Now we at this point do not have any further description of the jar that was to be used to preserve the manna. However, the Septuagint describes the jar as made of gold, which then is the basis of the description of the jar in Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 4. Hebrews. Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 4. It is in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4. Which had the golden altar of incense. 
and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. Still, I mean, describing the, uh, the sanctuary. I mean, the inner part of the tabernacle. Really, say so this ark contained the gold jar of manna. So here is described as a golden jar. But we didn't have that in Exodus. Now it's Aaron's staff that budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. So anyway, the jardin must be large enough to hold about four pounds of grain since an omer, as we have noted previously, is between 3.4 to 3.9 pounds. That was an omen. Now although it is not directly stated, there is the implication that when the manna is put in the jar, it will be covered so that it does not spill. That, see, all these are applications that Moses had to give to Aaron. Furthermore, the jar must be such that its opening is large enough that when the cover is removed, a person will be able to see its content. Now, there is so much not told to us. We don't know how these things happen in Israel. Whether once a year, this is one of my gates, maybe once a year, during some of the merry celebration. They were allowed to walk in a fire. Just look through that. See that. See that. See what. So we don't know. All we know is just they were to do that. How they did it. We have no biblical record of how they did that. Anyway. So the thing is. It has to be so that uh, people can see it. This is necessary. Since the manna was for future Israelites to see the food. Or the food substance that the Lord gave Israel in the desert. Now, by the way, there is uncertainty regarding when Aaron fulfilled the command of Moses. There's uncertainty about it. Now the problem is whether the jar was filled with the first provision of the manna or at a later date. Now if it is done the, during the first provision of the manna, then it creates a problem because of the reference to where the jar is to be placed that we'll get to at the appropriate time that did not exist at the very first week of the provision of the manna to Israel. Now this problem, however, does not arise if the instruction regarding the preservation of manna was carried out sometimes later in Israel's travels. If it wasn't done exactly immediately, then we can understand that it then makes more sense. Anyway, the second action Moses required then of Aaron as part of uh, fulfilling the Lord's instruction regarding the preservation of the manna for the subsequent generation of Israel concerns the placement of the jar with its content. The first one, the first action really gets by getting it and filling it, but where do you place it? It is this action that is given in the next expression of Exodus 16 verse 33, where it reads then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Now a literal translation is. And leave it. Before Yahweh. For safekeeping. For your generations. Now a literal translation though. Will, as I've given you. Is different from. What you have in the NIV. Now this instruction. Begins in with the Hebrew particle that we indicated is often translated and in our English versions as it is translated in this expression in many of our English versions such as the New English translation or the 
English Standard Version, among others. Now, it is probably better, though, to take the particle as conveying a sense of sequence so that it may be translated then, as done in the NIV, the New Century Version, and the New Living Translations, among others, too. In effect, Moses instructed Aaron what to do next after he had filled the jar with the manna and capped it. That's what we believe he, you know, he will fill it, he'll cap it. So he won't spill. Now the action Aaron should take next is given the word with the word play, place of the NIV. Now that word place is translated from a Hebrew word noah. Noah. That may mean to rest, to settle, or to settle down and remain. Now, as that is the way it is used, of course, for Noah's ark resting and settling down on Mount Ararat, as narrated in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. Genesis chapter 8 verse 4. It is, and on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest. That's our Hebrew word translated the place, yes, translate rest came to rest on, on the mountains of Ararat. Now the word may mean to have rest after laboring, as in the rest required of both humans and animals in Israel on the Sabbath, according to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14. And hold on to Deuteronomy because the next passage is also there. It reads, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gate, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Here is the issue of everyone having rest. Now the Hebrew word may mean to store, to store, as it is used to describe the treatment of the tithe of every three years in Israel. In Deuteronomy, Chapter 14, verse 28. Deuteronomy, chapter 14, verse 28. He reads, At the end of every three years, Bring all the tithes of the year's produce and store it in your towns. That word store is the Hebrew word translate place, Noah. Now in our passage of Exodus 16 verse 33, the word is used in the sense of to put or to place. That is, to move and set into a certain location of a place. Now the place that the jar of manna is to be uh, placed or located is given in the phrase of Exodus 16 verse 33 that we are studying. Look at that phrase before the Lord. It is to be placed before the Lord. Now that phrase before the Lord 
It's an interesting one because it has different meanings depending on the context. For example, the phrase is used in the description of Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10 verse 9. Genesis chapter 10 verse 9. Genesis chapter 10 verse 9 reads, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. See, here the phrase before the Lord refers to the Lord's care for Nimrod. In other words, he was a hunter cared for by the Lord. Now, in another context, the phrase before the Lord may mean the, the presence of the Lord, as that was the sense of the word with Moses. Someone the complaining Israelite community to tell them what God said, as in the phrase, the person we've already studied, but look at it where we're studying Exodus 16, look at verse 9. Exodus 16, verse 9. Reads, Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord. For he has heard your grumbling. That is, come to his presence. Now it is this later sense of the appearance of the Lord that the phrase is used with instruction of Moses to Aaron that we are considering. So Aaron understood that this phrase meant, as will become evident when we get to verse 34. He understood it. So anyway, Moses conveyed to Aaron the purpose of the placing of the jar in the static location. It is for the preservation, as we read in the verbal phrase of Exodus 16, verse 33, where it says, to be kept for the generations to come. Or literally, the Hebrew reads, for safekeeping for your generations. Now, this is because the expression is really how the translators of the NIV translated the Hebrew noun that in our verse of study uh, may mean keeping or simply preserving. Does Moses convey to Aaron what the Lord communicated to him that indicates that the manna is to be preserved for subsequent generations of Israelites so they will see what the substance of food the Lord provided to their ancestors in the desert was. Now as we have stated the preserved manna then was in a sense a teaching tool of God's loving care expressed in his faithfulness to provide Israel food for 40 years and a teaching lesson uh, too, to remind them of his power to rain down food from heaven. Now this reminder of course, as we have also said, should help all of us to recognize that we serve a caring, loving, faithful God who is also powerful to provide for our needs. Now there is more to this instruction given to Aaron regarding the preservation of this manna. It is with this we begin our next study. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will continue to remind us of what a caring, a loving, faithful, powerful God that you are. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen.